Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Uh, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you love to watch a good Western movie? A good country Western movie? Okay, there's a lot of people that do. There's a lot of people that don't. When you, when you ask people that, generally, if they don't, they'll, they'll respond something along the lines. They'll say, my dad made me watch um, Western movies, you know? And so just, I don't like it. But something weird happens when you're a dad. All of a sudden, you start to want to watch Western movies. It's just, it comes over, you know? And, and I was that way. My dad made me watch those and I didn't like them. And now yesterday, I, I told Jackie, I said, you know what sounds good right now? A good Western movie. And so by a recommendation from a lot of the people in our church, I watched Open Range, all right? I either forgot about that or never saw it, all right? So Kevin Costner's in it. It's really great actor. I think this is before he had a giant ranch in Wyoming um, because I couldn't see the tie in there, but he was in this movie and and he did really good and he's a cowboy and all that sort of stuff. And I I psychoanalyze the movies that I'm watching. And in particular, yesterday, I was sort of psychoanalyzing Western movies. Why do people like Western movies? I came up with a couple theories. One of them is there is the the buildup there's a buildup in all of the movies and the country Western movies that goes towards the shootouts, all right? The whole thing usually drives towards, there's a gunfight, all right? Everything, you learn the characters, you get attached to this one. If you get attached to a character very early on in the country Western, 100% chance they're dying in the shootout, all right? So that's, that's the point, all right? So you go towards that shootout and then I think there's that drive towards that and this is the psycho part, uh, psychoanalyzed part, not psycho part, the, the psychoanalyzed part. There's finality. There's a shootout, bunch of smoke and bullets and stuff and then it's done and the good guy won and it's over and there's so many of us that have that drive that we want the... We just want the fighting to stop, right? And we want the good guys to win and then we want to ride off into the sunset, that sort of stuff. And so I think we feel that way. There's also great lines in the movies, right? There's always these great lines in Western movies. Like uh, last night, uh, some guy was talking to uh, uh, Kevin Costner, Charlie, and he said something along the lines. It's like, what can we do? I'm just, uh, this is just a regular job I do. And he's just a, he just runs a general store. And Kevin Costner says, well, you're men, ain't you? And then just walks away. It's such a Western line, you know? Yeah, ain't you? Shoot the bad guy. That's what you're supposed to do, right? There's another scene right before the shootout where Charlie is talking to Boss, um, whose real name is Blue Bonnet, by the way, which I appreciate. And... Uh, his boss says, well, you, you got it all figured out, don't you? And Charlie says, yeah, except for the whole us not dying part, you know? And so it's just a great line, these great lines in these movies about that. Show of hands, how many of you have ever been in a shootout? Anybody? Nobody? We had a couple of law enforcement in the first service. And so it does happen. Occasionally people are in, in, in crossfire shootout type of things. And nobody raises their hands, but here's what I would suggest you have. You've been in a couple of showdowns, right? Have you ever gotten to those situations with your spouse? You're not going to admit it right now. You might side eye them, but you're not going to admit it. Where like for a week and a half, y'all aren't getting along. It started with just like a comment. And now all of a sudden you're like, we're about to fight. 
You say one more thing and we're going to go, right? You know, or your kid, sometimes your kids just run in their mouth and they're about to get it, that sort of thing, or a roommate, something. There's a showdown, you've done it, you've done it. And then also, and you know when it happens, the first shot's fired, you're squared off, you're going at each other, this kind of stuff. Only way we're limping out of here is one of us is dying, all right? That sort of thing, you know? Here's another thing I think, I think we have this undercurrent in our culture, in our world, in our nation, in which we, we're just constantly in a showdown. We're just constantly feeling that, right? Something happens in the news, Supreme Court makes a decision or doesn't. Uh, some corporation makes a new policy. Somebody says something, an actor had a thought. And then the whole country is divided. And we stand on different sides of the street and we stare down and it's wow, 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 you know. And we're ready to shoot. And then all of a sudden something breaks loose. There's bullets and insults and, and jabs firing on the internet. And that's how it goes. And we just fire at one another. And then it all calms down. Something else happens. We take sides again and we start shooting at each other. That's this constant feeling of being in a fight. And I think that's the part where we just want it to be over. Like, I don't even, I don't even care if I take the bullet. I just, I'm ready just to stop fighting. I'm ready for this showdown to end. The reason I bring all of this up is because in our text, First Kings, we're in Kings season one here, First Kings chapter 18, our lead character actually challenges other, the king and 450 of his friends to a, a showdown, to a shootout, to a fight. It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen at Mount Carmel. And this duel is of epic proportions and in the end, there's only a few left standing. All the bad guys die, the good guys are left standing and it helps us. As much as we don't really relate to country uh, movies anymore, it's not our society, as much as we probably feel disconnected from an ancient Jewish story, this story really helps us in that feeling of always being in some sort of fight, always being in some showdown, always standing our ground. So we're gonna talk about that today, but before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the example that is set forth in scripture. God, I pray that this morning we would take just a few minutes not to plan, not to think about what's happening tomorrow or the day after, not to think about lunch, but just for a few moments, we would open our minds and our hearts, that your word would speak to us, that, that your spirit would quicken us, make us alive, that, that, the, that the text would be illuminated, that we would see clearly the story and how it applies to our lives. God, I pray that this is a conversation, that it's not just a monologue, but it is a, a dialogue between between your spirit and our hearts. God, change us and where we need changing, give us the strength, the faith, the ability to change. We rest completely in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. All right, so the, the story, if you are in a small group, your text is gonna begin in verse 20, but I like to jump up to verse 18, 19 in that area. I'll read 19 here in just a minute. Our, our main character's name is Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of God. He is a person who stands up, called by God to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord to an entire nation. And the nation that he's particularly speaking to is called the Northern Kingdom. The nation of Israel has divided into 10 tribes went north. They're called Israel, 
the northern kingdom, two states south, it's called the southern kingdom or Judah, all right? And so Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's the good guy. He's the one on the white horse and the white hat, right? And the bad guy, the guy with the black hat and the black horse, unless it's tombstone, they all wore black, then it is uh, Ahab. Ahab is the bad king. He's an evil king. He's married to a lady named Jezebel, which I'm sure you have heard that name. One day, Elijah just comes up out of the woods. He's just walking and he runs into a guy and says, go get Ahab, Ahab. And uh, this guy says, no, I'm not going to go get Ahab because the second that I go and leave to go get Ahab, you're going to leave. You're going to play a trick on me. You're going to tell me to go get Ahab. We're going to come back. You're not going to be here, which sort of gives us an insight into Elijah. Elijah is a, a jokester. He's sarcastic. He's kind of that old dude that says whatever he wants to because he's old, you know? That's how Elijah goes. That's how he lives his life. He's a funny guy to read, but he does end up getting Ahab, the bad king, to come and he challenges to, him to a duel. Verse 19, now summon all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah says, go get the king and 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and we're going we're gonna to duel on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal show up. The 400 prophets of Asherah do not show up. And then he sets out the rules. So let me read these to you. This is 20 through 29. Y'all follow along. I normally don't read this much text, but it's a great story. So follow along. So Ahab, the evil king, summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver, go back and forth, waffle between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of, of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. And then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers with fire, he is the real God, okay? So make a decision. We're gonna see which one's real. And then all the people answered, that's fine. Can you imagine ancient Jews? That just sounds funny to me. I don't see ancient Jews going, that's fine. That's what, that's what we'll do. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, there's a ton of you guys, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. You can go first. There's a lot of you, you go first. And then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. Verse 26, so they took the bull that he had given them, prepared it and called on the name of, the, of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us. But there was no sound, no one answered. And then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon... Elijah mocked them. He made fun of them. This is the sarcasm coming out. He said, shout loudly for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away or maybe he is on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and he will wake up. So they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their customs until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving. Interesting, the word gushed for the blood coming out, like a lot of blood, is similar to the word raving, meaning a lot of noise was overflowing. So this is a very violent, overwhelming scene until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But this is probably the saddest line in the whole story. 
Verse 29 says, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. So this is the first shot. In this duel, as the two stand out here, I really want you to picture this scene. Elijah's at this side of the street and 450 prophets are on this side of the street and they take first shot. They fire off the first shot and it's, it's an overwhelming shot. It's an overwhelming noise. When you read the Old Testament, it's important that you at least try to picture the scene the best that you can. One guy, this altar, there's a dead bull on it, blood everywhere, that sort of stuff. And 450 prophets dancing around, cut and bleeding and yelling. It's so loud, so violent. Can you see it? Can you, can you hear that sort of noise? There's thousands of Israelis uh, standing by. The king, I imagine, is in a chariot sitting over there watching this whole scene take place. And one of the feelings, one of the thoughts has to be for Elijah how completely overwhelming this is. There's a ton of them and they're loud. There's a ton of them and they're loud. I don't know about you, but I feel that way in our world, right? There's just a ton and it's so overwhelming. I'm telling you the truth. This is just from Josh's heart to you. I am really tired of fighting. I don't wanna fight anymore. I don't. There are things that I believe and I hold them and I am not letting them go. And apparently there are people who very much disagree with me, right? You make your choice. You're grown up, make your choice, deal with the consequences. I will deal with consequences of my choice. That's just really how I feel. To be honest, I, this last week I went into Starbucks and there was this big giant rainbow banner and um, some very affirming uh, language on chalkboard and stuff like this. And you know, it's the year that it is, I'm sort of used to that sort of stuff everywhere, but there was a part of me that just thought to myself, why can't my cup of coffee just be a cup of coffee? Why do I have to take some sort of like stance on, on gender and sexuality? Why do I have to do that? Why can't I just get a cup of coffee? That's the way that I felt in that moment. I felt in this moment like it is just so loud and so overwhelming. The life can't just be, right? I felt like I was alone, like Elijah, just isolated and alone. There are... There's verbiage and language all over the internet, social media, news and stuff. When you're, when you're reading about the overturning of Roe, right? Which is a good thing. And then there's this, there's this dialogue that just seems to me to have left logic or reason or anything like that. We're not talking about uh, the less than 1% because of rape or incest and the, and the mother being in danger. We're talking about um, violence that's being done to a, another human, a murder. That's what we're talking about. And there are people that talk about that with just no qualms at all. Like, it's not that we just disagree. It's just that I don't understand what this is. And it sounds so loud. And it sounds like there's so many, right? You feel completely isolated. And I do want to just take like a side note, like a rabbit trail just here for a second. Because I'm not just a preacher. Like I'm a pastor and I'm a human and I'm a person that knows other people. And I know some of you. And statistically speaking, it is impossible that a church our size, that there are not people, women within our church who carry with them, not just some political debate. They carry with them weight or maybe shame or guilt or some sort of 
regret because at some point through some circumstances, through things that I can't relate to, that I don't understand, that there was a decision that was made and it hurts and that sort of pain. And I, and I, and I wanna tell you, I see that, I acknowledge it, that in Christ, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's healing, complete, total restoration. God looks at you and sees Jesus. He doesn't look at you and see your past, your regrets, those pains. I also know that there are men in our church that similarly, not the same weight, but similarly carry, carry pain and guilt because they coerced, they paid for, they forced that same sort of decision. I understand that. And I'm putting that over here and I'm acknowledging that. And I'm, I'm, I'm walking alongside of you in that sort of pain. On the other hand, not to diminish that in any way, but on the other hand, a lot of what I read and a lot of what I see is just evil. And I'm going to stand against it because like Old Testament prophets, preachers, one of our job is to be a voice for those who do not have a voice and who has less of a voice than the unborn. So we speak against these things. I can do both. I can walk and chew gum. I can do both. And I see all of that and it's very, very hard for not just me, but for you as well to stand in the middle of all of this muck and mire and noise and mess. It's stand in the middle of all of this because it just feels so loud and so overwhelming. That's, that's how Elijah had to feel. And I'm imagining that the false prophets would have had to be loud. They would have had to do that because you know what? They have staked their entire lives on this false God. They've staked everything on this false God. And everywhere we look, in our society, there are false gods. We do that, we create false gods. A lot of us create and worship the God of consumerism. Like you feel a pain, a nagging, some sort of desire to be loved by somebody that you're gonna buy that. That if you have a certain brand on your shoes or a certain brand on your, on your t-shirt, if you are posting certain pictures from certain locations and you're getting a certain number of likes and hearts and, and whatever it is that you're going to feel accepted and loved and, and like you have a purpose and have a meaning and you are just worshiping at the false idol of popularity. That if you get one more pair of shoes, a bigger boat, a nicer house, a promotion, you will finally not feel the nagging desire to be something, to accomplish. And it's not just, you know, what we like to do in church, we like to get in a room like this and talk about them, like all the bad, evil people that are out there. Not us, not us. Man, listen to me. I know pastors that have been fired for preaching what Jesus taught. We have idols. We have all sorts of idols. If I stand up here and say something that doesn't exactly align with your particular politics, you're not gonna like me anymore. You're not gonna listen to me, right? And I am quite sure that in nearly every sermon, I've said something that doesn't align with every one of your particular politics. I did it on purpose. We have idols. We follow these gods. And listen, like I said in that sad vo voice or that sad verse right there, whether it's success and popularity and safety and security, or if it's worshiping the past or tradition or our particular view or, or our nation or our politics, those sort of things, whatever it is, those gods do not listen. 
they do not respond. They do not pay attention. You can live your whole life worshiping a God that does not have a plan for your life and does not care. To that, Elijah ridicules them. He makes fun of them. I don't, I thought about this show of hands. Well, I thought we would show our hands or we would vote in some way, but you don't have to. Just how many of you think it's a good idea to make fun of people you disagree with? Is that the Christian thing to do, right? I was thinking about this, the prophet right there, and it says that he mocked them. He mocked them. I can't imagine myself just like walking into some bastion of liberalism, you know, like University of Texas, Austin or something, and like mocking them, right? In the name of the Lord, you know, that's just... It just doesn't make sense to me. And so I was really trying to debate this and listen. Um, so one thing is the Bible, all of our heroes are flawed. All of our heroes do things that we shouldn't do. And so I decided if you are the prophet of the Lord, you can mock people, all right? Otherwise, let's stick to the whatever is encouraging and good and wholesome and that sort of lift one another up like Jesus says, all right? Prophets of the Lord, you can mock people. But in his mocking, we see a couple of things. We see the way that he thinks of Baal. And then we see the way that he thinks of Yahweh. He said something, he's like, say it louder. You know, he's a God. He's way up there. And so maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's thinking about it, right? Or maybe he went away. Maybe he has what the CSB says, wandered off, all right? Which is um, a joking way, most scholars believe, is a joking way to say that maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe your God is sitting on the toilet. You know, so speak louder. You know, he's busy, that sort of stuff, that kind of thing. Maybe he has wandered away or, or maybe he is asleep. Wake him up, right? And so it's a mocking, it's ridiculing, it's sarcastic. I don't think that we should do that. But what it does is it reveals something about what he thought about Baal and what he thinks about God is that God doesn't think things over. God's not reactionary. Our God, the real God, he has a plan and it happens. You don't have to yell louder. He already heard you. He's as close as a prayer. He's present. He hasn't wandered off. He isn't away. He has a plan. He's present and he's powerful. He will do what he wants to do. He's mocking Baal, but actually what he's doing is he's revealing his view towards God. He is trash talking in the middle of the competition. And when you trash talk in the middle of a competition, you better be able to back it up, right? You better be able to back it up. A couple weeks ago, my sons and I were snapping each other with towels. You ever do that? If you're a good dad, you do. You know, snap each other. And, uh, and uh, if, you, if you dip the, the edge of the towel in water, you'll raise a welt, all right? So you need to make sure that they're old enough to take that. And so uh, me and the, the two youngest ones, we were really getting out. We were running around the whole house. I got Leland pretty quick because he doesn't dodge real well. But I got, uh, Amos took forever, all right? And so I finally got him. I did this like maneuver where I hid and he thought I ran that way and I didn't. I ran this way and he dropped to the ground and screamed like bloody murder and I hadn't hit him yet, right? He just, he hit the ground. And so when he was done screaming, then I popped him real good on the, on the thigh right there. That's where you want to get somebody, okay? So I popped him, you know, and he screamed and acted like he was hurt. And so then I went and sat down and I was like, I, like, I got to sit down. I got to sit down. I'm tired. And Leland says, that's right, because you're old. That's what Leland says, you know, because I'm almost 40, and so he thinks I'm ancient. He says, you're old. And I said, the old guy out of breath, 
just beat both of you like that, you know? And it just deflated Leela. And he was like, ah, oh, it's true. The old guy did beat me, you know, that sort of thing. I said, the difference is I can back up my trash talk and you just got beat, you know, like that. And I promise I did not get hit one time, not one time. That's what Elijah does. He takes a shot and now it's his turn. They make a lot of noise. Nobody listens. And now it's Elijah's turn. Verse 30. Verse 30, he says, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me, gather around. So all the people approached him and then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes, of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built the altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench, like a ditch, around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. So he covers it in water. And then he says, do it a second time. Then he says, do it a third time, verse 35. So the water ran all over the altar. He filled even the trenches with water. And at the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, at the right time, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and didn't cut himself. He didn't dance. He didn't shout. This is what he says. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And that at your word, I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So fascinating to me that the way that the storyline... Elijah doesn't build an altar, he repairs the altar. He puts it back the way that it was supposed to be. Look, our hearts long for something new. We want something brand new, a fresh way to read our Bible, a brand new way to pray, some new church experience. And listen, what scripture is always doing is it's just calling us back to what we already knew. You don't need something new, you just need to do what you know. Just go back to that. He calls them back and says, very specifically, he says, at the right time, the right bull on the Lord's offering, in the Lord's name. This is the way that God had established this. And he recalls them. He rebuilds. He reminds them of three things. He reminds them in verse 36 of who God is. He calls them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We read the Bible so much that that just sounds like the way that people talked about God. That's just the way that they talked about it. But that's a specific way to speak about God. Use the word Lord. It's a covenantal name. It's a promise keeping name. What Elijah is telling them is like, you remember Abraham? He didn't have any children and God promised that he would have children and all of you, you 450 false prophets and every one of the witnesses standing around, you are the answer to God's promise. He reminded them of what God or who God is and then what God does. In verse 31, there's this side note. Pay attention. Anytime you're reading the Bible and there's a side note, like details that don't need to be there. He says, and so he got 12 stones for the tribes of Jacob. That part makes sense. But then that whole next part, to whom the word of the Lord came to said that your name shall be Israel. That part doesn't need to be there, right? You remember Jacob? Jacob is Abraham's grandson and he was not a good guy. He lied, stole from his brother, tricked his dad, took off running because his brother wanted to kill him on account of the, the thievery. And in that moment, he wrestled with God 
actually physically wrestled with God. God changed his name to Israel. No longer are you the deceiver, the liar, the cheat. You're now the, the prince of, you're the prince of God. That's what he says. That's how he changes the name. That's the way he redeems him. Elijah's reminding him that our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God and that he takes the worst and redeems them. Man, I can see it on your face. I can see your face. Y'all know that? Sometimes I don't think y'all know that. You're sitting there like this. I can see your face. And so for the ones of you that are paying attention, I can sometimes see that when I'm standing up here and I'm telling you stories about Jesus, you're like, I like that Jesus guy. I like this story. I like the way that that's going, but I'm a bad guy. I've done horrible things. If you knew what I have done, you would know this doesn't apply to me. Listen, you gotta hear Elijah say, God redeems the worst of these. Ain't nobody too bad for God's love. I promise you, there is no bad that you have done that, that outruns God's grace. You're not that bad. I mean, maybe you are, maybe you're a horrible person, but God is still gracious and God is still loving. That's the reality, that's the truth who God is, what God has done, and then who they are. Verse 31 again, you read that? I noticed something this last time I was preparing this. I've, I've read this story of my whole Christianity ever since, you know, as a kid and Bible school and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed something for the first time. And if you noticed this before, I'm about to tell you, then you see me after service, I'll give you a cookie, all right? I really will, a real cookie, all right? Not just like, good job. You saw in verse 31, how many stones did he pick up? You can say it out loud. 12, 12. He put out 12 stones. And why 12 stones? Because there's 12 tribes. That's right. Yeah. That's how I always read it. But keep this in mind. Remember what I told you at the beginning of the story? Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom. It's only 10 tribes, not to all 12 tribes. He's only a prophet to the northern kingdom. When Elijah takes 12 stones and pulls them together and says, these are all the 12 tribes from the, the tribes of Jacob. He is reminding them of what they were originally made for, what they were originally created together to be. He put 12 stones in a pile, not just 10, not just to the tribes. He says, originally this entire family, this entire nation was to reflect the glory of God to all the nations. That is originally what you were supposed to be doing. And you can still do that. You know why? Because God is a promise keeping God. He redeems the broken. And so sometimes as a church and as Christians and as, as Baptists, we, we feel beat up. We feel broken down like a disrepaired altar with stones all falling around. And man, I just want to stack those all back up and say, our job, why we were called was to encourage one another for the glory of God and the good of others. And we can still do that. Our God is exactly the same. We can fulfill this. So Elijah takes his shots in that way, not by building himself up, but by reminding them of who God is and what God does and who they are. You know, in those Westerns, sometimes there's a scene, and I love this scene, right? They're, they're on two sides of the street, and um, I don't know, somebody says something, and then they, they pull the gun, you know, and, and there's a pop, and there's smoke, you know? 
not in the scene like last night, uh, in open range, there was like a hundred something shots, right? Eddie, Eddie counted them like a hundred something shots. And Kevin Costner shot that one six shooter 13 times. I rewinded it and he was like, it's like, there's only six bullets, dude. And but 13 times. Anyways, in those shots where it's like, Pa-pa! then they'll like, they'll zoom in on the eyes. They're looking at each other, wah, 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 all that. And then all of a sudden, one of the characters will go, you know, fall back. That guy lost, all right? He lost the thing. It's like silence for just a second. That happens in this text. What is it down in verse 37? Yeah, 37. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Silence. Quiet. All day, 450 people have been dancing and screaming and shouting. Silence. And then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trenches. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It goes from dead silence to thunder and lightning falling, completely licking up that water. Baal was often depicted as a bull. The bull was cut up and laid on that altar and Baal didn't respond. Baal was the God of weather and God responded with a lightning strike. God is, he is God. What he does is he reminds us of a couple of things that it is not about our ability. Elijah couldn't have lit that fire. You remember he had it all soaking water. He didn't sneak over there with like a match and throw it in there, you know, and there's little smoke and then it lights up and everybody's like, ooh, you know, lightning falls breaks apart the stones. God made a declaration. It's not about our ability, it's about God's ability. He also reminds us that God will be glorified. You know, when that lightning falls, all those people that are standing by, they don't just like, ooh, and then look at Elijah and like, yay, Elijah. You know, there's no Elijah Jordans or Elijah t-shirts or something like that. It's just, it's God, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And remember in Elijah's prayer, he said, God, answer me so that they will know. Keep this in mind. Elijah and Ahab are political enemies. Absolutely to the death, political enemies. Elijah and the 450 prophets are to the death, religious enemies. Elijah's point is not to own the libs or to make fun of the conservatives. His point is not to prove the other religion wrong. His point is so that they will know God. So that all the people will know God. It's not about me. It's about his glory for their good. Guys, he prays that their hearts would turn back to God. The undercurrent of this text is heartbreaking when you think about it. An entire nation that served a false God that does not listen and does not hear. And I'm telling you, no matter how bad you are, your heart, you can turn your heart back to God and he will accept you and he will love you and he will redeem you and he will adopt you. Listen to me, listen to what I'm saying because I mean this because I don't think you believe me, but I mean it. He will love you. He will forgive you. That weight that you carry, he will let you loose. You just trust Jesus. You just come to Jesus. 
he will forgive you. He will let you loose. Stop carrying it. Stop dying under it. Stop suffocating. He will forgive you. Elijah says, turn their hearts back. So here's what I want you to walk out of here with. If you alone stand with God, you are not alone. If you alone stand with God, you are not alone. No matter how loud it gets, no matter how crazy it seems, you are not alone. A few weeks ago, I uh, went to Crumble Cookie. Any of y'all done that? Anybody done Crumble Cookie? Yeah. What in the world? Are you kidding me? I never even heard of this thing. And then one comes to Conway. I looked it up online there in 47 states. 47. I didn't even, I never even heard of this thing. There's one in Hawaii. There's one in Alaska. I think they've got bigger things to worry about than cookies, you know? I go into this thing and I had never been there before. I dropped the boys off, the two youngest ones, the ones that I, I whipped with those towels. I dropped them off for basketball practice. I don't want to sit in basketball practice. So I go, I'm going to surprise the family with some crumble cookie. I walk in that door and I'm immediately overwhelmed. I figured out if you want to make money in this country, find something very simple like coffee or cookies and make it super complex and charge a bunch of money. That's a surefire way to do it, right? I walk in there and I'm like, I walk up to the kiosk, right? Because I know what I'm doing. Oh my goodness. You know, like flipping there. There's all these cookies. There's the cookies of the week. There's the not the cookies of the week. There's some of the cookies are hot. Some of them are cold. I don't think we like cold cookies. Why are you serving cold cookies, you know? And so, and then they had creams or something. Is it called cream? I didn't know what that was. Is that like ice cream or is that the middle of an Oreo? I didn't know. And why would you eat a whole tub of the middle of an Oreo, right? It's disgusting. So I end up buying three chocolate chips and three confetti. Chocolate chip, I know, you can't mess that up. And these ones look pretty. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to take these. And I went home, completely overwhelmed. Psychologists say that humans are different than we think we are, which is obvious, but we're different than we think we are. We think we want lots of decisions or lots of choices. That's why we go to places like Ikea or CarMax. But our brains don't work that way. When we have lots of decisions, it's horrible. That's why Ikea and CarMax are horrible. All right? It's just too many decisions. Too much to do. Can't figure this out. This story is not Ikea, CarMax, or Crumble Cookie. This story is just one choice. It's one choice, two options. You get to choose. One choice, two options. You can either serve the God with a plan who is close, who is powerful. Or you can live your whole life and find out at the end, no one answers. No one responds. No one paid attention. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.